years ago, I went to a, uh, a gathering of pastors for Acts 29. Acts 29 is the church planning network that we're part of as a church. And I remember going to this gathering uh, with several friends that were pastors and we spent time there together. But one of my friends was speaking and he was talking about just uh, prioritizing things. And I, I didn't know it at the time. Later, I, he, from him sharing and then reading it later on, he was basing some of those things from a book by a guy named Charles Hummel that was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And so what he was saying and, and what the book says is the, the greatest danger in our lives is letting the urgent things crowd out the important things. And what he was saying in the context of pastors is how to prioritize the things that are of the most important rather than just the things that feel the most urgent. But what he was saying to us and encouraging us together as pastors as we met is true for all of us. It's a good reminder for every single one of us to be reminded of putting the things that are of the most importance over the things that kind of press in on us day to day that feel urgent that feel like they're the most important in the in the moment, but not aren't really. And so I want us to think about just that, how that happens and how at different times in our life we let other things kind of crowd in. Probably the, the most obvious way that happens a lot of times is our vocation. Our job can start to overtake our time and our energy and our thoughts, and our job can crowd out more important things like loving our families well and spending time with our friends and spending time with our church family. And so we can easily get caught up in that sort of thing. Uh, we can see it, uh, even things that we kind of feel are urgent, that if we really stopped and thought about are not urgent at all. Like we let entertainment, we let sports, we let things that in our life become like the thing, like I've got to rearrange my life around this thing that's really not that urgent, but it feels that way in the moment. And so we can easily slip into letting things that feel as if they're more urgent overtake the things that are truly important. But probably the most dangerous way we do that is we allow temporal fleeting things of this life become more important to the things that God tells us that are eternal. We let the temporal take precedent over the the eternal. And so God calls us to see those things first and foremost, the most important coming first over the things that feel urgent. And so there's profound spiritual implications there when we think about that. You know, God has given us a finite amount of time on this earth that we get to walk by faith in the way that we are. Uh, in James's letter, he says it's, our life is like a mist, uh, like the at dawn, and it goes away like the dew on the ground, and it evaporates quickly. It's over in an instant in terms of the scope of eternity. And so we have just this short amount of time to live by faith, to prioritize the things that are of the most importance over the things that feel urgent in the moment. And so when we think about that, what is most important? What are the things that we should prioritize? And so I was thinking about in uh, Matthew chapter 22, is the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, are trying to catch Jesus in some sort of lie or some sort of contradiction. They're worried about the, the way people are now following him. And so in Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus. And a lawyer at this time is someone who had the Old Testament memorized, that knew it in, in, in such clarity. And they came to Jesus and trying to catch him. And they said, well, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and then he says, and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and the prophets hinge on these two things. And so he summarizes all of God's law in those two ways, that you love God with the entirety of your being first and foremost, and then you love people out of that. And he says that summarizes it. And so that's a pretty good place to start when we say, well, what is most important? Well, Jesus says to love God and to love people. And he tells us a whole lot of ways in which we're called to do that uh, in word and in prayer and community as we go on mission together. And he shows us these things in the way in which we're to live. But yet oftentimes the things that we feel is urgent crowd those things out. And how easy it is for those to become secondary rather than the primary things that God calls us to. And so I want us to think about how do we prioritize that which is truly important? How do we make the eternal more uh, stand over the uh, temporal? That we put the things that are truly important over the things that feel urgent. And so as I was thinking about that, we, we get this picture here at the end of of romans chapter 15 where paul's talking about his life and his mission and these people that he's going to and it's gotten into kind of the personal greetings part we're going to see that next week too in chapter 16 but there's some things that paul says here that are really helpful for us to prioritize that which is most important and so if we were to stop and think about who has done that best obviously the the answer is jesus Right? God himself comes and he shows us exactly what it looks like to live as humans in the way God has designed us to be. And he was always putting things in their right order and everything that he did. But outside of Jesus, as we look to the followers of Christ, that Paul would be right there up at the top of the list, I think, in terms of prioritizing that which is truly the most important. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And in, in the Greek, in the actual way, he says it, live Christ. That's really what he says. This is who I am. It's what we just sang, right? We gather and sing that. All I have is Christ. And that's what Paul was saying. And that's what he was about. And so I want us to think about the things that he shows us or kind of comes out in this text that helps us prioritize that which is most important. And so we're going to look at this together, but before we do, before we look at these four things that I want us to see here, just a word on why this is so important. Look at what we talked about last week, chapter 15 and verse 13. This is right at the end of where we were last week. Last week, we really talked about the hope that we have in Christ. Hope is the confident assurance and things that are to come because of what God has done for us in Jesus. We were talking about that last week, but look at verse 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And so I want us just to start there and think about that before we even talk about these different things that helps us live out of this, about why this is so important to love God first, to make him the center of our lives. And what scripture tells us over and over and over again is this is where our greatest joy and peace and hope will be found because you were created for God to be the center of your existence. And everything else will fall short. Nothing else will be able to take the place of God or ever bring you close to that. And so the things that we often let our life crowd out, the most important, the urgent things, will never give you the peace and hope and the joy that is found in Jesus. And Jesus says this over and over. I've come to you and I've said these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so it's important that we're all that we're looking for, all that we're dreaming of, all that we're hoping that we would find in our life by giving our attention to the urgent things will only ever be found in the most important. So with that said, let's look at what he says here 
about how we grow up into that. And the first thing I would say to you is that we have to see that our identity, the fullness of who we are is found in Jesus and what he's done for us. Look at what he says in verse uh, 15. He says, I have on some points written to you very boldly as a way of reminder. And then he says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. And then he says uh, in verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And so there in verse 18 and there in verse 15, he says, it's because of the grace of God given to me. In verse 18, he says, I won't speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And this marks Paul's entire life. And he sees this clearly that everything that he has and everything that he will ever accomplish and everything that he will do of any meaning and significance will because of, be because of the grace of God given to him in Jesus. And I just remind you, I was overtaken by it as we were, were singing. That's the words of all I have is Christ, right? This was my life and I was running in my own way and God came and he powerfully opened my eyes to see who he is. Now use my ransom life in any way you choose. All I have is Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here is that everything that I have and everything that I will ever accomplish is because of what God has done for me, because of his grace to me in my life. And it's so important for us to be reminded of that. And I know I say this each and every week that we are saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done for us, that we can't do anything apart from Jesus. But it is so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for that to become secondary in our life. And we need to be reminded and that needs to sit right at the very forefront of our thinking. If we're going to put that which is truly important over the things that are urgent, if we're going to put the, the truly uh, eternal things over the temporal things, we must see that it will always be found any of that in the grace of God and what he's done for us in Jesus. There's no other way. It will not work in any other way. And so to do anything of significance is going to be through the grace of God. Now, when I say that, I've heard people uh, kind of push back on this idea scripturally at different times, and they say things like, well, well, I have friends that are not believers that do all kinds of good things, that care for people, that love people, that do great things. And I, and I see that regularly, and you go, well, they're not a believer, but yet they do some good things. And to that, I would say, yes, I would affirm that. I would affirm that in this way. All people are made in God's image. Every single person on the planet has been made in God's image after his likeness. They are image bearers of their creator. And because God is gracious and loving and kind and long-suffering and patient, he gives his common grace to all people. And so there are people through the grace of God that are doing great things, even that, though they are not recognizing God as the one who allows them to do so. And so we talk about God's common grace and the way he works and moves in people around us. But if you stop and think about what God is calling us to, what Jesus says, the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To make him the very center of your being and all that you are. And if that's truly what we were created for and the way God has made us to glorify him, to show what he is like in all things, if you remove that peace from your doing, you will never be able to do the things that God has called you to do in fullness, to glorify him. 
to make it about him. And even if you're doing good things, there will quickly be problems, unsolvable problems that arise. Because oftentimes what will happen is we'll do good things so you can say, well, look at the good things I'm doing. Or maybe it's even a little better than that. I'll do good things so that I can help other people and I want to make them uh, have a better life for whatever it may be. But in all of that, I'm removing God from the picture and I'm never living up into the fullness of what God has called me to be. And so we can't do anything of lasting significance apart from the grace of God in our life. And so we need to think about that theologically, that in our sinfulness, in our ignoring God and the world he created, that there will always be a skewed picture of everything apart from God's grace. And so there's the theology of that, that we need to be uh, reconciled to God by what Jesus has done for us. And that is absolutely true. Only in God moving powerfully in our life does he open our eyes to see the truth of who we are, like Ephesians 2 You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. You have been saved by grace through faith, and it is not your own doing, but a gift of God. Same thing we saw at the beginning of Romans. So clearly over and over again that none of us has done it. Romans 3.20, no one will be saved by works of the law. No one will be saved by their doing, but only by the grace of God in Jesus. And so God saves us by opening our eyes to see that reality, that we are sinful, broken people that need to be reconciled to a holy, righteous, perfect God. And it's only by what Jesus has done. And Paul knew this, and he lived out of this reality. And I want you to think about why it was so clear in his life. And so let's be clear here. Paul was not saved any differently than you and I are saved, anyone who comes to faith. The same thing happened. God brought him from death to life. He opened his eyes to see. He made him a new creation in Jesus. He gave him the spirit to now live in in him and with him. But I want you to think about Paul's conversion. If you know about his conversion story, he saw very powerfully, outwardly, physically in his life, the inward spiritual, spiritual reality of what God was doing. And so if you know Paul's story, He was going through uh, the new church around the time as the new church is first starting to grow right after the resurrection. As as the gospel is going out and he was adamantly opposed to the gospel and everything. And it tells us if you read in Acts 7 and 8 and 9 and chapter 8, Stephen, the first martyr, is martyred for his faith. And Paul is standing there uh, approving of what is happening. And then it says right after that, he went out and he was pulling people out of their houses and throwing them into prison, anyone that was a Christian at the time, he was adamantly opposed to Jesus and the gospel. Chapter 9 at the beginning of Acts says that he was uh, breathing murderous threats. And he was going out and literally trying to round people up and throw them into jail, overseeing people being uh, martyred for their faith. And so this is who Paul was, also known as Saul. When you read in Acts, don't let that throw you. His name was Saul. It gets changed to Paul. But we see that in Acts. But then what happens is that God moves powerfully in his life and opens his eyes to see him, literally. And so Paul's walking down the road and God knocks him down and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And it says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting, he tells him. And so he gets up, blinded from this experience, goes to meet a man that God sends him to meet. They wash his eyes. He can now see physically. 
He now sees the reality of who he is and who Jesus is, and he begins to powerfully preach the gospel. And so what you see and what Paul experienced in his life is what happens in all of our life when we become a believer, but he had this outward physical thing that happened in his life. I was actually reading that over again in Acts chapter 9 this morning, and I was struck by the man that gets sent uh, to meet Paul as he's blind. And he goes to him and God says to him, when you go meet him, he says, I don't want to go meet him. Don't you know who he is? He's throwing people in jail. I don't want to go there. And he says, no, 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 go meet him. He is my chosen instrument. That's what God says. And I can't help but think that God purposely chose Paul in that way, like that, because there would be no pretense with Paul that it was his doing. As he's going down the road to throw people in jail, to oversee them being killed, and God knocks him down and says, stop persecuting me. I'm now going to use you. The same is true for us, but we forget that. We often think, well, I'm a little better than that. I wasn't actually persecuting the church in that way. And we can slip into thinking that that's not true of us. But it is. That it is only by God's grace that we are what we are. And so that has to be first and foremost if we're going to put that which is important over the urgent, that you are not your own, that you belong to God, that you have been bought with a price and what Jesus has done for you, and this is who you now are. But then the second thing that I want us to see is as that happens and as you begin to grow in your faith and you begin to step out in faith, faith begets greater faith. Right? So think about this. Look at what he says here in verse 18 and 19. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem to all the way to Elysium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul knows so powerfully that it's all God's doing. But if you read through Paul's life and what happens right there in Acts chapter nine, the scales fall off his eyes. He now can see the next day he goes and he begins to say, Jesus is the son of God. And he takes this experience and what God has done in his life and he steps out in faith. And then he does it again and he does it again. And God continues to meet him in every single phase of his ministry, showing his power and what he's doing. And if you know anything about Paul and you've read about him in the New Testament, he says, I didn't speak with great wisdom. I wasn't just this incredible speaker or powerful. I was there with fear and trembling and my words were not with plausible wisdom, but God was doing this work over and over. And it's because he was stepping in faith and God was meeting him at each step. And so as I was thinking about that, it reminds me of a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was a Christian apologist, a writer, a critic, a whole bunch of things, late 1800s in England, but a brilliant man. And he says this, Christian, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, but it has been found difficult and left untried. He says, the problem is not as believers that we follow Jesus to the fullness and then went, you know what, that doesn't really work. The opposite is true, that we don't step out in faith and we kind of stay in the same place and we go, I don't know, that sounds difficult or that that scares me a little. And then we don't make those steps and then we're frustrated. He says, it's not the people that have followed Jesus to the ends of the earth that are disappointed. It's because we often don't step out in faith. 
And I think how much of Paul's life shows that, that he continued to follow Christ in each step and God met him in those ways. You know, as I was thinking about that, it reminded me years ago, I went to uh, Europe. Uh, I got to backpack around Europe. Actually, it was 20 years ago. I was looking at today. I got back almost 20 years ago. Uh, I went for 40 some odd days. I started in England and ended up in Greece. And I went all over. And on that trip, I remember, I think it was my mom gave me a book before I left that I was reading. And, and the, the short of it is, uh, continue to ask God to expand your vision of the way he wants to use you. Pray to him daily. God, show me how you want to use me. And I remember reading this on the plane, very vividly, reading this book. Wasn't real long, got to the end. I was like, okay, okay, God, I'm going to pray this each day. I'm, I'm not working. I get to take this time. I, I had a great boss that let me take this time to go to Europe. And I went, and for 40 some odd days, I went around Europe. And every day I woke up and I said, God, who do you want me to talk to? Who would that be? And what does it look like? And I still go back and read my journal at different times that I kept from that. I remember being in Stratford upon Avon in the middle of England. God, who do you want me to talk to? And opening my eyes and a guy sits down next to me and says, my wife just divorced me and I'm thinking about ending my life. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think this is the guy you want me to talk to. And I remember sitting there and praying with a guy and getting to share the gospel with him. I remember the next day on the train, the same thing. And the next day after that, I remember standing in the middle of London. God, who do you want me to talk to? And all of a sudden, there's a lady standing there who's a prostitute trying to solicit. Hey, you want to come back? No, I don't want to come back to you, but I want to tell you about Jesus. And it was everywhere I went and over and over and over again. And every time you're opening your eyes, the second you're finishing that prayer, it was almost like you would be finishing the prayer, like opening one eye, like, oh, no, what's it going to be this time? But it's because we are now in tune with who God is and what he's doing and he's showing us and he's meeting us in that. And as you step out in faith and you see him move, there's this expectancy. What is he going to do next? What does that look like? And so asking him. And I think you see that in Paul's life and everything that he does and over and over to the point where he gets where he can say, it's not me. I'm not speaking of anything I'm doing. It's all God's doing. And I see it over and over again. And so faith begets greater faith as we continue to step out and trust him. But then the third thing, when you read here, you see clearly that Paul has a very clear mission. He has a very clear understanding of who he is and the way God's gifted him, right? Look at verse 20. He says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And then he says, this reason why this is the reason why I have been hindered in coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in this region, and since I've longed for many years to come see you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you. And so Paul has a real clear understanding of who he is, the way God's gifted him and what he's called him to and what it looks like. He is an apostle that is going to where they've never heard the gospel before. That's his ambition, he says. That's the way that God has called me into my ministry. Now, that's... Part of that is unique to Paul and that he is an apostle. When we say apostle, there's big A apostle, like capital A apostle. 
And we mean those that were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus that had a unique authority of being there and seeing who Jesus was and what he did. And Paul is in that category. He's an apostle. And he's going with this message in a particular way. But Paul also was an apostle in his gifting, kind of little a apostle, which I think still exists today. There's not apostles in that eyewitness that we have this authority that the original apostles had. But little a apostle in the sense of someone who's good at seeing new frontiers, that's understanding what's next and where we should go and thinking strategically like Paul's doing here, right? He's like, I spent this time here and now I've gone to all these places and now I'm going to Spain and I'm going to go through there and I'm going to have you help me. And he's seeing all of these different levels and ways. He has this unique gifting. And so my point here is, is even though that is who Paul is, that might not be your gifting, but it might be. God might be calling you to sell everything and go to a place where they've never heard before. That might be your gifting, but it might be different. If you notice here, he talks about passing through. He says, I hope to see you in passing through Spain to be helped on my journey there by you. And then he talks about the church in Macedonia and Achaia and how they've been pleased to make contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And he starts talking about the way the church is working together in all these ways. And so the third thing that I want you to consider when we talk about putting the important over the urgent is beginning to see how God has gifted you and living out of that gifting. We all have different gifts that God's given us. The Bible is very clear that you become a believer and God blesses you with spiritual gifts and they're not for you, but they're for those around you. They're for the good of the body and for the uh, glory of God, for the gospel going out and God has gifted you in particular ways. And so we want to grow up into what is more important over what are the, the, uh, the pressing or the urgent things that we feel that way. We want to have the, the eternal over the temporal. We want to begin to live out of our gifting. And so Paul was doing that, but we too are called to do that. And so when you read through the New Testament, uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how the body has many members, but different functions like the hand and the eye. He uses that analogy. Jesus is the head of the church, but the body works together and God has gifted us all differently. But what he says is each one is varied and different, but needed and important. That every single person here, if you have come to faith in Jesus, you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and God has gifted you uniquely for the good of those around you. And if we want to grow up into the fullness of the important over the urgent, what God is calling us to, we want to live out of our gifting. Now you can say, okay, hopefully you go, well, Bible says that and I believe that and that's true, but there's a good question that usually comes, but I don't know what that looks like or I'm not sure what my gifting is. And that's okay because God calls you into a community of faith and he tells us that oftentimes that that is discerned in the body. What ends up happening is people get to know you and spend time with you and we go on mission together and they go, you know what? You're really good at this. I think God has gifted you in these ways. Let's begin to work together. Your gifting and my gifting and yours and all of them come together and we show what God is like more fully in doing so. And so living up into our gifting, God discerns that in community. And so I just encourage you, if you're not sure what that looks like, we want to help you with that. That's our job as a body of believers together. You go, I don't know where God's gifted me. Well, let's go to work looking at that together so that we can use the gifts that God's given us to the fullest extent for his glory. And so you have your identity in Christ first and foremost. 
as you begin to step out in faith, that faith leads to greater faith as you see God moving. You begin to live up into your identity and who you are using the gifts that God's given you. And all those things help to make the most important things over those temporal things, over the urgent things. But the last part, and we'll, we'll end here, is pretty straightforward. I'd say it's not real complicated. The truth is that even though we have different giftings in different places that God's called us, we all grow in the same way. Think about what he says here again in verse 18 and 19. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And then he says, by word and deed, by word and deed. And we see this over and over in the scripture that to grow up into the fullness of what God has called us to be, we are going to be abiding in Jesus and in his word. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, abide in me and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. And then right after that, right after that, he says, if you keep my commandments and you follow these things, you're going to see uh, the the fruit of that. And he calls us to obey him. And so there's a real simplicity when we start to go, how do we see the important things over the urgent things? You read what God's word says, you let it stand over you, and then you obey it. It's not that difficult, but we make it way more difficult than that. Well, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to spend in this. We let the urgent crowd out the most basic things, abiding in his word and his word in us. And so trusting him and seeing who he is means abiding in him in all things, letting God's word stand over us. He has revealed himself to us and what he's like and what he's calling us to. Right? We say here all the time that we have one mission to make disciples that make disciples. And we say discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life. So how do we grow in obedience? We abide in his word and his word in us. And then we do what he says. We obey. And we step out in faith, right? Do you see how that goes with the, the stepping out in faith? Is this is what he says, and I'm going to obey him, and then we see that growing. And so we let God's word stand over us in all things. But then the last thing, and we'll end here, look at the very last thing he says. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. And he says, I need you to be praying for me and with me. Paul understands how clearly that it's going to be God doing this work, that he can't do any of it. He says, I need you to be praying for me that God would open these doors and that he would do this and he's relying on God's prayer and all things. And so I want you to think about this and we'll end here this morning. When we think about the urgency of our life and the things that are pressing in over what is truly important, prayer is hard in our culture. When you stop and pray, I'm going to pray about these things. I mean, just think about it for a second. You stop and you pray and you're not doing anything physically right? You sit down and you're praying and that's it. And I know how hard it is because you're like, I got a lot of things I got to get done and I need to get to it. And I'm not getting anywhere by just sitting here. So I need action and not just praying. But when we stop and we pray, we're recognizing that we can't do any of it apart from God and his grace in our life. 
It takes us back to the very identity of who we are. It reminds us that I can't do this, that it has to be God that does this. And he alerts us to the way he's moving and the way he's working. He changes us. He shows us. He meets us in that. But we can't do it apart from him. And it's so hard because it seems the opposite. It seems like an oxymoron. You're really busy, so you need to stop and talk to God in this. I don't have time for that. It reminds me of Martin Luther and what he used to say. Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said, I have so much to do tomorrow. I'm so busy and I have so much to get done. I'm going to get up early and pray for four hours. And you hear that, right? You hear that with 2021 ears. You go, that's insane. I don't have four hours. But what Martin Luther knew is he couldn't do any of it apart from God in his life. And so by taking that time and stopping and seeking the Lord, listening, hearing what he's telling you, but talking to him in all things, showing you him, meeting you in that, it sets us in the place that God is the one that's in control, that he is the one doing it and relying on him in all things. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel, that our identity, that who we are, anything that we accomplish is by your grace, and we thank you that that is true. I pray that you would continue to remind us when we want to take the reins back and make it about ourselves and what we do, that we would continue to seek you, that we would listen to what you tell us, that we would respond in faith, that we'd be obedient, that we would continue to come before you in all things, asking you to lead and guide us in all truth because we cannot do these things apart from you. And so we thank you for your great grace to us and the ways that you love us. Help us to be refreshed today of the reality of who you are, that you are the king of kings, that you are over all things, that you are our creator and our redeemer, that you sustain all things and that you are at work and that you want to use us in that. And so give us ears to hear what you are calling us to do on your behalf, that we would be used mightily for you, for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.